My name is Brad Cheney. I'm one of the pastors here. You see the passage that's printed in your bulletin. Not exactly Advent-themed, is it? (laughs) We're back to the book of Acts today. If I had done a better job of um, planning my sermon series, then we would have had an Advent sermon today. But I ended up writing the sermon a couple weeks ago and completely forgot that today was the first Sunday of Advent. So I promise Sunday after and the Sunday after that will be Advent sermons. But today we're going to continue in the book of Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. About 10 years ago or so, a Microsoft guy published a book in which he attempts to debunk many of the myths of common sense thinking. The title of the book, maybe you read it, is Everything is Obvious, How Common Sense Fails Us. It's written by Duncan Watts. Uh, in it, he tells a story of teaching an undergraduate class in, um, at Columbia University. He stands up in front of the class and he says this, I want you to consider two countries. Country, in country A, 12% of the population agrees to be organ donors. In country B, 99.9% of the people are organ, organ donors when they die. And he asked the class this question, what do you think accounts for that discrepancy? So he gets a class together, they, they all kind of you know, pool up in, in small groups, they start discussing among themselves. Um, maybe one country is in the third world while the other country is, is a developed country. Or maybe one country is very religious while the other country is not. Or, or maybe uh, one country had a lot of accidental deaths, so organ donation just became a, a cultural priority there. Then he says, he stands back up. Well, let me tell you this. Country A is Germany, and country B is Austria. Two very developed countries. So now tell me what is the the difference between these two. And they start thinking again. um, Maybe maybe Austria had a big media campaign to encourage organ donations. Germany hadn't. Or or maybe maybe during the Second World War, uh, something terrible happened with the Nazis, and and they were harvesting organs, and and therefore there's just a social stigma in Germany about that. And he, he finally stands up and says, all right, Here's what it really is. It's amazingly simple and quite boring. In Germany, you actually have to sign up to become an organ donor. In Austria, you automatically are unless you opt out. (laughs) Opt in, opt out. It was just—it was nothing but a bureaucratic difference. And yet, they realized that if if you made somebody actually have to send in a piece of paper asking for something, and the majority of people wouldn't. And Rhoda and I have talked about it. That's how we've decided we're going to now start with the volunteers in our nursery, right? Everybody's opted in unless you, <laughs> unless you opt out. But a, a structural change in things can make a very big difference, can it? We see something of that going on in Acts chapter 6 which we'll read now. Not the most scintillating passage of the Bible, but, but it is God's word, and we're grateful. We are grateful for it, are we not? It's God's word. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered, that is the twelve apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. 
we will turn this responsibility over to them and uh, we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the word of the Lord. We pray that you would open our eyes to see what is written here, open our hearts to hear, open, um, uh, open our lives that we might be fully obedient to this your word. And we ask it in the name of the Son who has come, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me start out by explaining the historical situation as best we can understand it here in Acts 6. There's a decent amount of evidence around the first century that a large number of Jewish men and women, as they got older in life, decided to move to the city of Jerusalem in order to reside there in their last years. And so what you had were people coming from all over the Roman Empire, all over the Mediterranean world, to live either in Jerusalem or around the vicinity of Jerusalem. I mean, largely for superstitious reasons, so that they could basically be buried near the holy city. Well, what ended up happening with that is if, uh, I mean, a husband dies, and I mean, normally the guys die before uh, <laughs> the women do. I mean, that, we see that true, you know, across all cultures, but especially in, in ancient cultures, the men die first. And if you moved away from all of your kids somewhere else in the Roman Empire, you're re- residing outside of Jerusalem, it ends up creating a, a real widow problem. I mean, a large number of women are there who have no way to take care of themselves. I mean, a widow, as you know, was a very vulnerable person in that society. They did not have a 401k to fall back on. They, I mean, they were largely dependent either on their family or in this case, they were dependent upon the church. So there are two groups of widows that are spoken about here in the passage. It says that the Grecian Jews, that is, the people who came from you know, the, the then-known world, and then the uh, Hebraic Jews. So the traditional Jewish, Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem, ah, there we go, who, um, who would only speak Aramaic, versus those, and they probably wouldn't have spoken a word of Greek. I mean, they came from a very traditional culture, uh, living, you know, growing up in the city of Jerusalem. They didn't speak Greek. They were not cosmopolitan. They hadn't traveled the world. Then you have these other Grecian, um, you know, Jewish converts who do speak Greek, and they have lived all over, and they have, it's a different culture, language, and customs. The two probably had very little interaction with one another, except when they sat together in uh, the synagogues. So the church in Jerusalem, as I said, they had a widow problem. And so they set up a system to care for these widows. They did it during a time when there was a lot of, a lot of stuff going on in the church. I mean, the church was being persecuted. The church was growing tremendously. It's bursting at the seams. They create this relief system, probably created on the fly. Uh, and it's a system that ends up uh, giving advantage for the, the, uh, the tradition, traditional Jewish widows over and against the Greek-speaking ones. 
Now, here's a very important part of the passage. Nowhere does it suggest that this was uh, intentional, that, that the oversight was malicious, that they like were trying to overlook them. It, it wasn't mean-spirited. It wasn't racist. It seems like it was just merely an administrative oversight of the church's fault. Those happen in churches, don't they? And what I think we will, will look at is just simply how the apostles— these um, 12 men decide to fix one of the problems in, in the church. So number one, three steps that they take. Number one, very simply, they acknowledge a mistake. I mean, they own it, which is for many of us, the hardest part of a lot of conflict is, is the mea culpa, is, the, is admitting that it is my fault, my bad, like we screwed it up. I take responsibility for it that the, um, the apostles do that. You know, they could have had a totally different spirit. They could have said, who, who, we're apostles, you're not. Shut up, right? They could have said, the only problem here is that you're complaining. Um, they, could have had, they could have had a very prideful spirit. They could have, as, as so often takes place in your work, People deflect the blame. You know, it was somebody else's fault. They push it off on someone else. And they could have done all that. They could have said, ladies, you figure this out on your own. But no, what they do is they truly own the mistake. Something also that I think goes unnoticed in the passage is this. The brothers who bring the complaint to them seem to be rather gracious in the the bringing of this complaint. They don't interpret this oversight in the worst possible light. It's not, they're not like, you Jerusalem-born Christians, you're looking down on us. You, you think you're better than us. This is bigotry. They don't do any of that. They, it seems as though they bring the complaints in a, in a gracious spirit. Um, and we can certainly see how the devil would have used that other kind of spirit to you know, d- damage the church. But thankfully, God spared uh, the, those who are bringing the complaint from that censorious heart. You know, mistakes happen in the church all the time. Needs get overlooked or forgotten. Things are miscommunicated. Decisions are not always explained well. Uh, de- wrong decisions are made um, by the leadership. That happens. And, and, uh, and look, you know, I admit it. Um, and and by saying that, it doesn't absolve me or Phil or any of the elders of that blame. But I can tell you this, church, it is a, it is a truly wonderful thing when, um, really three things happen. Number one, when you have a church that is willing to bring their complaints to the leadership, who actually trusts the leadership to listen to those complaints and to deal with it. Number two, when they do so in a gracious spirit, and when they do so, number three, uh, patiently, like giving the leadership enough time in order to address, fully address and, and deal with those complaints. And it, as simple as it is, that is what's being modeled to us right here in the Bible. Now, I thank God that that is actually the kind of church that you are. You really are. Um, uh, many of you are so gracious to me. You know, you're, you think that my job is ex- exceptionally hard. You're like, you think, oh, he probably gets a lot of hate mail every week or <laughs> lots of complaints. Maybe you send that all to Phil, but <laughs> I don't end up getting it. And, and even, when, 
you know, even when people do point out and complain to us as leadership, like you guys do it in such remarkably gracious way. Um, and in that respect, in many respects, it is a truly a joy to get to pastor you. Um, you know, I'm so thankful for almost 20 years, All Saints has treated my mistakes and my missteps and treated our, our eldership with that kind of um, gracious, trustful spirit. Um, and we want to be that kind of leaders. I mean, what we want to, all of us, don't we? We all want to be so confident of our position in Jesus Christ, of our identity in Christ, that we're not defensive. There were people who can take criticism, like who can, can lit it, like legitimately hear it, receive it, take it as constructive, find something positive. That's the kind of, I know that's the kind of man I want to be. I'm sure that's the kind of person you want to be. Um, and that's the kind of thing that is modeled to us in the Bible here. So number one, own it. <laughs> Admit your fault. Now, step number two. They select godly men. It says men who were full of the spirit and full of wisdom. The names, I don't know if you've picked this up, but the names of these seven men are actually kind of significant. It's long been pointed out by biblical scholars that all of the names are Greek names. And you say, well, what's going on there? Just because they're Greek doesn't necessarily mean that they came from elsewhere in the, the Roman Empire because two of Jesus' disciples who had grown up in Judea and Palestine, Philip and Nathaniel, who, who actually, no, I'm sorry, they grew up in Galilee, those are Greek names too, yet they are, are you know, they were obviously native-born. But it strongly suggests that the fact that these guys all had Greek names but suggests that they were chosen from among the Greek-speaking Jews. The idea by the apostles is if, if there are any complaints that we're, we're unfairly treating the Greek-speaking widows, then we're going to be sure and put Greek-speaking Jews on it to fix it. We don't want there to be even a sniff of favoritism here. Um, verse 6. So what they do is they, they not only select godly men— but they empower them for the task. It says that they presented these men to the apostles, who uh, they being probably the church, presented these men to the apostles. They were selected from the church, and the apostles prayed and laid their hands on, on them. Now often, laying the, one's hands on someone is a sign in the church of ordination, of distinctly commissioning them to a church office. And that is why many commentators down through the years have said, these guys are your very, very first deacons. They are the first deacons in the Bible. Um, in our denomination, deacons, they, uh, they serve for the physical needs of the church and they care for the poor. Um, and we, we bring them before, the, after the congregation votes on them, we bring them in front of the congregation, we lay our hands on them. They are, we say, a ministry of sympathy and service. And that's what they do. They care for the, those. Where the, okay, I'm going to take us into slightly controversial territory now. Where the big fight in our denomination ha has been over the last, okay, walk that back. <laughs> it really hasn't been a big fight, but it has been a matter of um, some debate and discussion, is whether or not we should ordain women as deacons. A little denominational history for us. The PCA was formed in 1973. In 1982, I think it was, the PCA has an organic merger with another Reformed denomination, the RPCES. 
denominational soup, right? Reformed Presbyterian Church, Evangelical Synod, made of largely churches in the northern part of the country, PCA, largely churches in the southern part of the country. They become uh, churches together. Many churches in the RPCES, while they didn't ordain female deacons, they did commission groups of women selected in the church and commissioned them by prayer to serve in diaconal kind of ministry, and they called them deaconesses. When they came into the PCA, there was debates, well, should we ordain those women? And the, the answer that the denomination largely came up with, uh, what did come up with, was no, we won't or- ordain them, but you, um, you can select godly men, women from your congregation, and they can be, according to our Book of Church order, assistants to the deacons. There, um, I'm no expert on this subject, but there's little doubt that women performed some ecclesiastical functions in the early church. Exactly what that diaconal function was is rather difficult to figure out. Usually the women who did so were widows. They were women who were like 60 and above or women who had taken vows of celibacy so that they were, you know, uniquely set apart to do this kind of work. And if you look at the readings from the Council of Chalcedon, from which we get uh, the uh, Nicene Creed, 451 AD, they actually change the age of these women from the age of 60, they lower it to the age of 40. What do these women do? Well, it's a little hard to tell. Back then, at some point in the early church, it became the way you did baptisms was often in the nude. And if you were a priest baptizing a nude woman, there's some problems with that. So we think that some of the work of these diaconal um, ladies were to assist in baptism. It was also to assist other women in in terms of mercy ministries and, and things like that. But Again, I'm not an expert on this. It seems as though, while they had some diaconal function, it wasn't as though you had male deacons and and female deacons all on the same deacon board, and it it was a little different than that. And even the idea of, um, you know, helping a a pastor baptize, it's very different than our understanding of the diaconate today. What ends up happening in church history is once you reach the Middle Ages, the office of deacon changes from from no longer is it really simply an office of caring for the needs of the congregation, caring for the poor. The deacons begin to, uh, they read scripture in the service, they can preach, they can do all these different ecclesiastical functions that are uh, historically only limited to men. And so at that point, all the men are, all the deacons are men and, you know, the diaconate has changed quite substantially. Uh, The Reformation was somewhat an attempt to change change uh, the changes into uh, church offices, and the diaconate was one of those. But all that to say, um, where was I going with all of that? All that to say, uh, in our denomination, the, the, the points have been made as this, that, that here you have a distribution of food and money to women in the church, and it is godly men who are chosen to lead that effort. Um, and uh, it's often been pointed out that in First Timothy chapter, is it 2 or chapter 3, uh, it's men who are spoken of for the office of deacon. Um, I don't know, I guess I just wanted you to be more aware of, <laughs> of um, what's going on in, uh, in uh, those, those kinds of conversations. Step 3, delegate responsibility and authority. 
That's what they do. They lay hands on them. They commission them for the work. One of the most important lessons in pastoral ministry you've got to learn in the early days of being a pastor is it's not necessarily better if you do it. <laughs> uh, in fact, you, you probably should do your best not to do it. Um, that really, Christ has created the church in such a way that he's given every one of you spiritual gifts so that you would do the work of the church. You would do the work of Christ. You are the body of Christ that is supposed to be doing the work of Christ. The staff can't do all the work. Um, that's not how Jesus meant the church to operate. And if a church does operate that way, it'll never grow into maturity in Jesus Christ. And so I know for me, when I started as a pastor, I felt like it all depended on me. I, you know, and all the weight of the church was on, on me. It really wasn't, but you probably feel the same way too sometimes, that if I don't do it, it won't get done. If I don't do it, it won't get done well enough. Sometimes it feels as though when you delegate responsibility, it's actually more work to delegate than to do it yourself. I mean, every mom who has ever asked her kids to help with washing the dishes has probably felt that before or doing the laundry. It's like, I'll just do it myself rather than delegate it out because it feels like it's so much more work. But that's not how God designed his church to operate. And one of the things here, let me pull this back. One of the things I really love about All Saints is when you see what happens in our church, if you, if you just turn to page 15, uh, I mean, many of the ministries in our church are not done by the staff. Uh, we have a, a really healthy di- diaconate that cares for the needs of the congregation and, and Uh, We have individual mercy ministries that are run by different people in our church. We have a a fantastic missions committee uh, that that is uh, leading us in global missions. Our children's music and and Christmas programs, that's not run by the staff. Um, The special community meals that we had earlier in the year and in 2019 last year that were so much fun, and I would love to do those again soon. I mean, those were completely run by people in the church. Um, I know I'm leaving out quite a few. Uh, the, the meals ministry, our greeting ministry, the, the elders in our church don't get paid a penny. Um, the building committee, there's no way in the world we would have been able to buy 13 acres of land and, and really look at building something on the land without our building committee, in particular, Jim Winkle's incredible leadership on that. I mean, all of that is, is done by you. And I apologize for all the people that I'm in ministries I'm I'm already forgetting because I know there are those, but those are owned and led by members and that's how the church is supposed to work. You'll notice that the apostles don't succumb to the tyranny of the immediate. I mean, the immediate need was, how do we fix this problem? What they do is, is they prioritize the ministry of the word and prayer. That's their primary focus. That's what my primary focus is as a teaching elder. That's not to say that I'm not supposed to meet with people. Uh, I'm, not, I'm supposed to like hide in my study all the time and, and work on sermons. No, that's not what it's saying. But it does mean that you want your senior pastor, hopefully, to really focus on the word and prayer and I mean, that's what the church has freed me up to do. I think that's what a healthy church does. And that's what's uh, modeled for us here. So here's a fair question. 
We are all finite people with finite time, finite resources, finite waking hours. We all must set priorities, right? We all, we all must set priorities. What have you prioritized in the church as your work? Um, like, where do you fit in the body of Christ? Are you a finger? Are you a toe? <laughs> are you a kneecap? Are you a leg? Are you an arm? What do you, where do you fit? I mean, because Jesus has, has grafted you into his body. You've got to fit somewhere. You're supposed to be doing something. And this isn't a guilt trip. You should be. No, really. Like, just, you're supposed to be doing something. What do you prioritize? What are your spiritual gifts? Where, where is it that you can be serving the church and the world? Please consider that question. You know, the, the goal of leadership is to create space. Sometimes, through just good administration to create space so that you can do the work of ministry. Let me finish with a story I heard this week from Kevin DeYoung, um, a sermon he was preaching on this same passage. There was a group of Christians who wanted to help the poor in their community. So they got a bunch of donations and opened a store for free clothes. Uh, And what could go wrong with that? A a free clothes store. There's, There's a lot of people in our city, they said, who need fresh clothes to wear. So what we'll do is we'll get donations. We'll open a store. Like we'll front all the capital for it. We'll, all, you know, we'll f- fund it. We buy the building. We staff it. We run it. And we just say, open the doors, free clothes. Like what could go wrong with that? <laughs> well, they quickly run into trouble as, as people just started coming into the store and just grabbing as many shirts as they possibly could and you know, heading out the door. They're taking so many articles that uh, they, so they instituted a new policy. You're only allowed to take, you know, this number of shirts. Well, the community didn't like that, and it, it started to turn into a somewhat of an adversarial relationship. So that they, there was just things like that that kept happening. Um, when it was, you're only allowed to take a certain number of shirts, then, you know, somebody comes in, takes three shirts, walks to their car, comes back in a second time because I'm on a new visit and takes, you know, another three shirts. They keep on creating new rules, becomes an adversarial relationship. What they realize is, you know, we started out with the best of intentions. I mean, our heart, our heart was right. We wanted to help people. And now the people are coming in and they're mad at us and we're mad at them. What they realized was they simply needed to charge for the clothes. If they had started out with that, that idea, someone would have said, well, that's not right. I mean, we want to, we want to give free clothes to other people, but they learned in time that they needed to run the the clothes shop more like a business. I'm not saying the church should run like a business, but I mean, every organization has to run with some administrative efficiency and, and wisdom. And they realized that, you know, if they ran the store as a business, it would give people the dignity of purchasing something at a reduced cost for themselves. It would also maybe be an opportunity. They can employ some um, of the very same people who may need the jobs. And they would cut down on people coming in multiple times a day and just hoarding shirts. And, and DeYoung uses it as an example, and I think it's a good example. You know, you can have, you can have the right heart, but structures matter. They really do matter. And administration matters. And it really is part of the job of uh, the ministratively gifted among us to put, you know, beams and columns and all of that in place so that you 
can do the work of ministry you know, easily within the, the context of the church. And so I just want you to know that there are likely lots of ways that we can and should and do need to grow administratively at All Saints. Uh, and if you have any ideas on how to do that, we're, our ears are wide open. I know F- Phil's ears are wide open. Um, let's consider those. Let's know those. Let's, let's take a passage like Acts 6, which again is not the most scintillating passage, and let's use it for our good and maturation. Now, I mean, we want Jesus to ex- have all of his gifts that he's given in this church being exercised to their complete fullness. Um, may God make it so. Amen.